0: If someone were to ask you, what is the world's biggest problem, how would you respond? Is it the Supreme Court hearing? Is it politics? Is it government or the debt that America's in? I believe the biggest problem we face in America today and in the, in the whole world is a theological one. The fact that man is proud and God is a just judge. I want to briefly read a few scriptures of you just to show you what the Word of God says about these two things before we jump in our passage today. Just listen as I read along. James 4.6 God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. He will not be unpunished. Psalm 7.11 Psalm 7.11 God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. There's rebellion in all of our hearts, right? I mean, it's seen in the world. It's shown through us in Scripture. Stuart Scott writes this on the Greek word of pride that there's really two ideas. The first one being someone stretching out their neck as to to show their accomplishments or what they made of themselves. But the other one is also a blindness, And along with man's pride, as I said before, we have the just judgment of God. And I believe, and scripture teaches, that people don't fear the just judgment of God because they, one, believe themselves to be good. How many times have we been evangelizing and people are like, but listen, I don't need Christ. I'm a good person. And the second point is the lack of serious sin, right? I've never killed anyone, so why would God not allow me into heaven? So we see the pride of man and the just judgment of God and how the proud man, which if you're a believer, you were proud, right? Insisting on our own way, thinking, oh, we're not in need of the Lord's salvation. We got this. So the, 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 the good intentions of man causes man not to fear the just judgment of God and also Like I said, the distorted view of God. You see, people believe that God is just love, mercy, kindness, patient. And indeed, he is those things, right? We read that all through scripture. God is love. But so many times we neglect the fact that God is also a just God, that he cannot look at sin and go, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. In John 3.36, it makes it clear that these proud people, the ones that are not believing in Christ and not obeying his scriptures, God wrath remains on him. Our passage for today will be in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, verses one through nine. And in our passage, we are going to see a picture of the pride of man and the just judgment of God that helps us to understand why God judges those that reject His commandments. And seek their own glory. So let me read that again. We are going to see a picture of the pride of man and the just judgment of the Lord that helps us to understand why God judges those that reject his commandments and seek their own glory. As we're jumping in 11 chapters into the book of Genesis, if you're a kid in here and you're in our Sunday school class, this is where we've been, right? Genesis 1 and 2. God created everything, and everything was good, right? And then what happened? Genesis 3 happened. God told Adam, hey, listen, you are not allowed to eat of this tree, this this tree in the midst of the garden of the knowledge of good and evil, but everything else you can eat. And then the serpent comes and tempts the woman, right? Oh, you won't die. Oh, God said you'll die. You won't die. Surely you won't die. You'll be like God, actually. And what does the woman do? Her, Her mind shifts and she goes, oh, Okay, and she eats of the tree, eats of the fruit of the tree, right? And notice that she gives it to her husband, right? The one that was commanded not to eat, she gives it to her husband who was right there with her. So in that, we see the pride of man, right? A rejection of God's word that, no, it's okay. But then we also see the just judgment of God that God would kick him out of the garden where he walked with him in the presence of his people and now they were away from the presence of the Lord and now sin and death came into the world because of their disobedience. And sadly it doesn't get better as the kids know. In Genesis 4, Cain, a child of Adam and Eve, kills another one. Kills Abel. And why is that? Because his sacrifice was not accepted to the Lord. And in fact at a rate... rages him so much that he decides to kill his brother. And the Lord comes up to Cain and said, where's your brother, Abel? And he looks at God and he says, I don't know. What am I, my brother's keeper? And I I try to explain to the kids in our Sunday school, if you kill someone, they don't just go walking off, right? I mean, they just probably there where you killed him. So he's looking at the face of God and saying, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And instantly we see the judgment of God once again. He he becomes a wanderer and the Lord curses his work and the fruit of his labor. And I have to add this, God was so merciful, right? Cain, after killing his brother Abel, goes, but people are going to hurt me. And God said, if they hurt you, I will I will give them sevenfold of whatever they do to you. So already we see the the proudness of man, right? And the just judgment of the Lord. And the fall in Cain and Abel. And then what you guys, you kids learned today? The flood, right? God looked at man and said, listen, his intentions are evil. And what does he do? He annihilates everybody except for eight people and the living animals by a flood. But even in that... God promises to never flood the earth again. And so why do I bring up those points prior to reading this chapter? It's because, like I said, by the time we get to Genesis 11, man's pride and God's judgment is not a foreign concept. So read with me as we read the text today. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language. In the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Thoroughly. (laughs) And they had bricks for stone and butter for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So I divided this section this chapter into two sections, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see the action of man. What did man do at the Tower of Babel? And then verses 5 through 9, we're going to see God's action. So, two opposing actions at the Tower of Babel. So, I'm just going to read the verse, explain it, and we're just going to simply walk through this passage to see what the Lord would have for us. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. When we think about Scripture, we think of the kindness and the goodness of the Lord, right? That He would reveal Himself. That we don't have to look to creation wondering, who is this Creator? But He's given us His holy word, right? That reveals Himself. And just the clarity and the accuracy of God's word. And what do I mean by that? Notice with me in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. We would understand as the people, if you have the same language, there's communication, right? But the Lord takes it a step further and says the same words. Even in our language, right? We have miscommunications and we speak the same language. Maybe husbands are like, yeah, this morning, my wife, she just didn't understand. And the wives are like, yeah, I didn't understand what you were saying, right? There's, There's miscommunications, even though we speak the same language. I work in a little town of Jasper, Georgia. And there, though they speak the same language, which is arguable, they don't have the same words, right? <laughs> and so here are some words to show that though we speak the same language, not all of our words are the same. Reckon. That means you suppose something is true. Yo, over yonder. That means a place somewhere in that direction, but the actual location is not specified. <laughs> if you go to the store, it's a buggy, not a shopping cart. And I got this one. "Which you did you? You didn't bring that knife over here with you, did you? In <laughs> case you didn't get it, it's with you, did you? And the last one's from Tim Brown. And this one's namaste. And I'll put this one in a sentence. Y'all going to evacuate for the hurricane? No. Namaste right here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you guys are laughing. <laughs> the point is, is that there's confusion in the same language, right? And, and, and even in the same words. But here in Genesis 11:1, God is so clear There is no confusion among the people. And this is important because by the the time we end this chapter, that may not be the case. But here, God is showing us there's no confusion among the people. The whole world has one language and all the same words. Imagine that you could go into Andres' Sunday school, right? And worship with our Spanish brothers and sisters in Christ and understand them. It would be a blessing. Verse 2. Now, as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now we find out, not only the people, that they have the same language, but now they're settling somewhere. And why is that a big deal? Now, if we're not careful, we won't remember what the Lord told Adam and then what eventually he told Noah. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? And then, as I already told you, Genesis 6 happens. God floods the earth and here you have eight people and now they're repopulating the earth but the commandment is still given to Noah and his descendants right after. After God promises to never flood the earth again, he tells them, hey, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then six verses later in Genesis 9-7, he says the same thing, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so now you have these people Settling. It's a rejection of God's word that they're settling here in Shinar. They're looking at this land, this beautiful property, luscious, a place to settle. And they're disobeying the word of God. They're not filling the earth. And in verse 3, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn, burn them. And they had bricks for stone and tar for mortar. Since the people decided to settle, right, they wanted permanent structures. No longer tents and animals and being nomads in the land, filling the earth. No, they took it upon themselves to settle in this land. And now the Lord is calling attention to what they use for their building materials. Okay? And the reason he does this is because he's showing the Jews who would read this that they're not using the same material that the other people did. And in fact, this tar is the same thing. If you remember Moses' mother, she didn't want her baby to die, so she she put him in a basket and sent him down the river. But in in that text, it also says that she put this tar around this basket. And this is the same tar that the people at Babel were using to build their structures. Growing up in Florida, right, we have different structures. If a hurricane comes and you have a wood-framed house, right, we have cinder blocks. And here the Lord is causing or showing us the, the material that these people were using was the real deal. It's like the mag daddy of material, right? I mean, he is just saying, so now we know the people's language. We know that they have the same words. We know that they're settling. And now we know that they're building something different from the regular Jews. Now, verse 4 is the heart of the problem of this whole section. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The reason they wanted to build a city is they wanted security, right? When you're nomads, you don't have too much security. And so what did they do? Well, they built the city with the purpose of not being scattered, and they're building a tower for their name to be glorified. So not only are they rejecting the commandments of God to fill the earth, but now they're saying, oh, that's not enough. We're going to build this city and we're going to build this tower and our names are going to be glorified. So when people look at us, the people of Shinar, they're going to go, wow, look at these buildings. Look at these people. And they're taking the praise that God rightly deserves and they're putting it to themselves. This is a side note, but God, doesn't, God is not angry if someone's name is popular, right? I mean, we think of MacArthur. We think of godly men, Right? That's not the problem. The problem was that they were making a name for themselves. But in Genesis 12, we see that God tells Abram, listen, I'm going to make your name great. And there's a vast difference between the two. One takes matters in his own hands, and one seeks to serve the Lord. And if he makes his name great, well be it. But he's going to be serving the Lord and not seeking to take that glory upon himself. Right? I mean, we do this all the time. We do an act of kindness for someone, and what do we do? Selfie, social media, right? Let other people see my good works. Let people praise my name and look at my good works, and wow, God, Kyle is just a godly man. I mean, look what he's doing. Look what he's saying on social media. And all of us, every single one of us in this room, are not strangers to pride. Right? I mean, always. Our, Our hearts are so proud. We're just like these people, seeking our own glory and making a name for ourselves. Now that we've seen the people's action, right? They had the same language. They're settling when God told them to fill the earth, the materials they're using, and now that they're building a city so they won't be scattered and that they're building this tower so their name to be glorified. And this is great. Look at verse 5 with me. And let me just read verse 4 again. That way, that you, that way you understand the uh, contraction that's happening here. In a tower with its top in the heavens. So they wanted to build a tower with its top in the heavens. And before I read verse 5, where does God dwell? He dwells in heaven, right? In verse 5, "...and the Lord came down to see this city and the tower which the children of man had built." How ironic is it that these people are like, yeah, we're going to build this tower, and it's going to go in the heavens, right? And then notice what God did. God came down to see it. I think of like a little boy, right? Dad, I'm going to have the biggest muscles in the world. And then after a set of push-ups, he's like, look at these, Dad. And the dad squints like, is that bone or muscle? You know what I mean? I just think that's the same picture that the Lord is doing. Oh, this is the tower that's supposed to be going into heaven. It should be noted that the Lord is omnipresent, right? The Lord knew about the tower in the same way when Adam and Eve sinned and God came in the garden and and, and Adam and Eve are hiding and God's like, where are you? He knew where they were, right? It's just a figure of speech or the same thing. When God asked Cain, where's your brother? He knew what happened to his brother. It's a figure of speech. And so obviously the Lord knew about the tower, but he just comes down to see it. And verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is, the only, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they pr- propose to do will now be impossible for them. Think about this. The Lord is looking at the wickedness of these people, and He's telling the Lord... The Lord who created everything is looking at these people and saying, these people are so wicked and unified and seeking their own glory and rejecting my commandments that nothing will be impossible for them. The Lord, the Lord said that. These people are seeking to dethrone God of his rightful place and his rightful glory. And now they want to replace it with their name. Who should receive the praise? Oh, us. Look what we did. And they're unified in it. It's not like Noah. You know, Noah was just a faithful, righteous man. I mean, all these people were wicked. And I had this thought this morning. I wonder, I wonder, this is just Kyle's imagination. I wonder if the Lord, if he had not promised in Genesis 6 that he would never flood the earth if he would do it again. Because these people are wicked. Unified in in stealing the glory from God. Rejecting God's commandment to fill the earth. Verse 7. Come let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So now the Lord has a plan, right? He's going to confuse the language of these people. These people that have the same Language in the same words. Now, his judgment is going to be okay, these people are wicked. Now we're going to confuse their languages. And in verse 8, we'll see what happens. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. So what happened? The Lord confused their language. That was the judgment. And what was the reaction of the people? And in fact, it wasn't the reaction of the people, because we'll see the Lord. Who dispersed them? The Lord dispersed them. And how did He do it? By giving them different languages, confusing their language. I think of a man on the tower going, Hey, give me a brick. And the other one's like, on, estás? You know, it's like, No, that's not working. What happened to you? You were speaking this language yesterday. But then the Lord's judgment was instant, right? And the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. It's really hard to work for someone you can't understand. When I was in Snowbird, where I met my wife, uh, we would do these mission projects, and we were in the country of Andrews, North Carolina, right? And so we were serving this widow, and I came to her, I'm not handy, but they put me in charge, saying, Hey, you're going to fix this and you're going to paint. And I was like, Okay, I can paint somewhat. And, uh, and she's like, Can you do me another favor? So I met this lady. She's like, can you do me another favor? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she's like, you see that branch over yonder? And her, her driveway was about 150 yards away from where we were standing. And she's pointing to a branch in the middle of a mountains that runs parallel with the mountains, her driveway. And she says, you cut that branch over yonder? And I'm like, uh, can you show me? And she looks at me and she's like, you ain't from around here, boy, are you? And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> And so the purpose of that is that it's impossible, if not difficult, to work if you can't understand the same language, right? Or even the same words. Verse 9, Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Listen to this quote that Ross says in this commentary. Irony may be seen in the beginning and the ending of this passage. The group at Babel began as the whole earth, but now they were spread over the whole earth. By this contrast, the lesson was made clear. God's purpose would be accomplished in spite of the proud defiance of humankind. And as we think about this passage, right, we must ask ourselves, anytime you're reading the Word of God, What is the lesson and how does this apply to me? So how can we take the proud, rejecting heart of God's word and apply it to us as the people of God, the redeemed sinners seeking to be humble, loving servants to the Lord? The first one is rejecting the word of God. Do we reject the word of God in our hearts? Right? They rejected the word by not filling the earth. But when God tells us He's going to provide for us, do we believe it? Do we believe that He could really redeem a sinner like us? Is He really faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins if we confess our sins? The second one is, do we believe the commandments of God? When God tells us not to lust, do we say, God, I will love my neighbor and I will love you, but this woman, I can't help My flesh is gratified when I lust. Or if we gossip about others. Or if we slander another person. Do we really believe that God's holy word is the best thing that we can do? And that by keeping the word of God, our joy will be fulfilled. More than anything in this earth. Possessions, our own pride, our own glory, right? I believe every time we sin, we are looking at the face of God and saying, God, your word is not true right now. I know what will make me happy. I know what will gratify my soul. And your word is not it. Instead, it's this. Every time we sin, we do that. It's a rejection of God. His wisdom, his perfection, his knowledge. And the fourth one is, do we have a desire to serve or to be served, right? I mean, it's little things like putting away chairs, are we, oh, well, someone else will get that? Are we humbly serving others, right? Oh, well, I sat in a chair. I should put away. Oh, my brother or sister can't? I'll do it too. And now, what are some examples of when we seek our own glory? Anytime we act proud, we do this. We say, oh, God doesn't deserve this glory. I do. God doesn't deserve the glory for the hands and feet and wisdom and the ability to build this tower. I do. Secondly, a a desire to be recognized for our accomplishments, our talents, or our work ethic, right? We're in the workplace. Man, I'm putting 20 hours in a day and my boss still doesn't notice me. Well, why do you want that? Aren't you working unto the Lord? No, you want the glory for yourself. Are you a good writer, a good athlete? Glory, us seeking our own glory and for our name to be glorified, is seen in so many areas of our life. And fourthly, this is an oucher for all of us. We, as the church, when it comes to theology, when it comes to Bible knowledge, or the fact that we have an elder led church or reformed theology, right? We should, of all people, most be humbled by this that we were helpless, worthless sinners not seeking God and in God's mercy and his kindness, he would save us. How can anyone be proud by that? We can't look at someone and say, yeah, God saved me because of A, B, and C. No, we say God saved me even though I was a wicked, horrible sinner, his enemy. And I think about my own life. This was my life, right? Sports and popularity, my junior year in high school. And here I was, I thought I was cool. And I thought I was pretty good at sports, right? Seeking my own glory and my own pride. For my name to be glorified. And then all of a sudden I heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ offers forgiveness. But here's the bad news. The bad news is that we've sinned against the Holy God. And we deserve His rightful and just judgment, which is His wrath, His righteous anger. And all of us deserve that. And I've never heard that. I walked around with a cross on my neck, not knowing why Jesus had to die, saying I was a Christian, but living like a heathen. And then someone told me, Kyle Baker, you are going to be judged according to the word of God. You are going to be judged on this side, and Christ is going to be placed on this side, and you can't measure up. So how can I be redeemed? How can I be forgiven? How can I have eternal life with Christ? It's only through Christ, right? It's only by the work of Christ that we sinners can be forgiven through his life, death, and resurrection. And even now, as he ascended, now he offers salvation to all of us. He tells us to come. He tells us to repent and believe in him. And he offers salvation to anyone who believes. What a gracious and merciful God. And what else can we say but glory be to God and not ourselves, not our good works, right? No one is good, no one is righteous. If you're here trusting in yourself, do not. It will only lead to condemnation. And it's only Christ who can save. On that cross, what Jesus Christ did, that, 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 that wrath that we deserved, it was placed on Christ. I remember, actually, the first sermon I came to hear, Pastor Shane, me and my family, and my parents came. And it was on Easter, and he talked about the wrath of God at the cross. And I just remember, yes, yes, this is good. This is not watered down. This is faithful to the word of God. But that is what happened. So where does our wrath go that that we sinners deserve? Well, it went on the cross of Christ, on Christ himself. He bore our wrath. And now what does he offer? Well, if we repent, if we turn away from our sins and believe in Christ, trust only in Christ, not our good works, now he gives us his perfect perfection, his righteousness, right? He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So not only did he bear our punishment, but now he gives us his perfection so we, when we stand before Christ, we're covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not that we earned or did anything for, but because he gives it to us through faith. And if we're in Christ, this is our reality, that no longer we have the condemnation of the Lord, but we have the perfect righteousness of Christ. And we long for the day, whether the Lord tarries and doesn't come back here and we see him there, or Lord, if you come back now, we would rejoice. But if you're not in Christ, this is your reality. That you're proud, that you're trusting in yourself, and you are in need of redemption. So as we look at this narrative, that the Lord judges those that reject His commandments and the proud, how do we as the church not be like these people of Babel? It's really two simple points. Number one, as I mentioned, that we recognize our brokenness and helplessness apart from Christ that we remember what we rightly deserve. Brian Irby, a faithful brother and a, a kind man to pour into me, was just talking about this with the youth group, right? How do we be selfless as a youth group? Well, we understand what we deserve. If we deserve the wrath of God and God gives us breath, and these are almost his words, these are his words, right? Then God is gracious. If we deserve God's wrath and he gives us another meal, God is gracious, God is kind, And if we have that mentality, this is what I deserve. The Lord gave me this. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Lord. And then two, we look to Christ as our example, right? If the people at Babel were so proud and wanted their own glory, how do we look to someone who is humble? What is our example of humility? The Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? Flip with me to Philippians 2 in your Bibles. And I just want to read the passage and briefly talk about it. Verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So so Paul is telling the people at Philippi, listen, you need to have this mind among yourselves. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And he repeats himself here. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now the rest of the verses are going to modify the mind of Christ Jesus. How can we know the mind of God? If we're supposed to have the mind of Jesus Christ, what was the mind of Jesus Christ like? Read with me. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What was the mind of Christ like? A servant. One that was enthroned in heaven and Isaiah couldn't even look at in Isaiah 6. And now he humbles himself by becoming a man. The only God that is worthy of our worship. Right in Revelation 4 and 5, we see praises, endless praises to Christ. And Christ would leave that, would leave the throne of heaven and humble himself by taking a form of a man. If Christ did that for us, how should we serve each other? How should we serve Christ selflessly, just as Christ served us, right, to bring salvation to his people? As I said before, the main point of this passage is to show God's judgment for those that seek their own glory and reject his word. If you're listening and seeking your own glory and seeking your own pride and rejecting the commandments of God, and how do, you know, how do you know if you're in this category? Can you look at your life and say, I was dead in Christ, but now I'm alive. If you can't do that, you're probably in this category. If you can't look at your life and say, I hate sin and I love Christ more than anything, then you're probably not in this category and you need to repent. Repent and you need to believe in Christ. And for those of us who are in Christ, praise Him, thank Him, obey Him. Let us never lose sight of the fear of the Lord, that we of all people, church, should be humble servants of the Lord, knowing that we've been redeemed. Let us not seek your own glory, and let us not be proud people as the people of Babel, but let us be conformed to the likeness and image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for Christ. And we even look at the people at the Tower of Babel and say, Wow, we are so much like those people that we seek our own glory all the time, that we love the attention and the praise of man. And so many times we neglect the fact that we should be worshiping and honoring you. Help us to be a church a husband, a wife, a child, a grandma, whatever it is, Lord. But above all, help us to be humble Christians, serving the Lord with a humble heart. We thank you for your word, and I pray that you are glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.